Well, it's entirely possible, for all I know, that this year's Olympics have come to an end. Had I been watching, I'm sure I would have seen a magnificent closing ceremony that would have lifted my heart with pride in our great American athletes and possibly even made me momentarily consider getting a gym membership or at least not eating that last corn chip for the next few minutes. I can only imagine how inspired I would have been by seeing these fine young people take time out from having sex with one another to run around a track or shoot at something or jump up in the air and then come down again. I know that these are the sorts of moments that one always remembers if one watches any of them instead of watching entertaining stuff. But though I couldn't always be there to actually see the Olympics because they were on opposite keeping up with the Kardashians, I do want to add my voice to the many who complained about the media's sexist treatment of the female athletes. Just because a young woman in superb physical condition appears on screen wearing nothing but short shorts and a sports bra and then goes into a gymnastic routine that demonstrates the amazing, heretofore unimagined positions into which she can twist her lithe, shapely, semi-clad body with its soft curves alternating with flat, perfect stretches of muscle, including a pair of thighs powerful enough to crush a lesser man to a death indistinguishable from mindless ecstasy. I totally forgot what I was saying. Oh yeah, just because a beautiful half-dressed girl is contorting on screen is no reason the announcer shouldn't pretend to care about whatever the hell she thinks she's doing. We live in feminist times, and feminism demands complete and absolute hypocrisy, so women can, don't find out that nobody really cares about women's sports, unless the women happen to be dancing around like that amazing Australian hurdle babe whom I can't even think about if I want to continue speaking coherently. To fight this injustice, if I was talking about an injustice, I can't remember now. I'm still thinking about that Australian hurdler. But anyway, assuming I was talking about some sort of injustice, the New York Times, a former newspaper, wrote an article about the sexist Olympics coverage in which they interviewed Cambridge University researcher Sarah Greaves for some reason. Ms. Greaves says that despite the fact that women make up some 45% of athletes competing, the word man has generally been used roughly three times as much as the word woman in sports-related coverage. Some examples of this usage include, man, these women's sports are boring, and hey, man, while you're up, could you change the channel? But as the Olympics draw to a close, assuming they're over, and if there's a God in heaven, they have to be, be over sometime, I think we can all agree that the performance of the young, scantily clad women in Rio or wherever the hell they were would have been a triumph of female equality if anyone had been paying attention. If you don't believe me, here's a clip. It may be too late for a trigger warning, but trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, I take all of that back and I apologize. <laughs> it's mailbag day, and the FBI have found 15,000 more email questions, and <laughs> we're going to answer all of them. Uh, but unfortunately for you, that if you're watching on Facebook and YouTube, that comes in the second half of the show, so you will miss it unless you come over to The Daily Wire or you can download us from iTunes or SoundCloud. And it's too late to subscribe for this week's mailbag, but not too late to subscribe for next week's mailbag. You get 30 days for free, during which, in those 30 days, you can ask free questions, and then it's just a lousy 8 bucks a month. 
you can, come on, come on, really. And it allows you eight bucks a month, and then you can watch the show in its entirety and be part of the show in through the mailbag. Also, if you would like to order, pre-order my uh, memoir, a great good, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, uh, you can send the receipt to me at aclaven at dailywire.com, and I will sign a sticker that you can put inside the book. But whether it's signed or not, you will like this book. I promise you, you will like this book. The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. So I'm reading the news yesterday and watching the news about Hillary Clinton, and I'm thinking like, what? What? You know, my, my voice keeps getting higher and higher. I was like, by the end of that, I'm just going, what? what? You won't even be able to hear it. So more than half of the people outside the government who met with Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State gave money, either personally or through companies or groups, to the Clinton Foundation. This is the Associated Press. More than half of the people who were not government people. So these are the meetings that are not with direct government people. More than half of them were donors to the Clinton Foundation, okay? At least 85 of 154 people from private interests who met or had phone conversations scheduled with Clinton while she led the State Department donated to her family charity or pledged commitments to its international programs, according to a review of State Department calendars released so far to the Associated Press. Combined, the 85 donors contributed as much as $156 million at least 40 donated more than $100,000 each, and 20 gave more than $1 million. Okay. By the way, just by, by the way, these, these documents that showed this, the AP was after them for three years. Okay. They filed for them for three years. They had to sue the State Department last year in federal court before they turned them over. Okay. So this is like, I mean, so everybody... And by the way, and, and this is that's one story. And then on, in the Wall Street Journal is while she was Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton hosted a dinner involving Clinton Foundation donors, including a Ukrainian businessman who had given money to the organization and who had retained a lobbyist to arrange State Department meetings. The dinner attended by Viktor Pinchuk four years ago was mentioned in a new batch of State Department emails obtained by the conservative group Citizens United through public records requests. <laughs> So they're just extracting. It's like pulling teeth, extracting these things out, and more and more. You know, we have. You've you've now probably keep hearing the phrase quid pro quo, and not many people know this, but we have here at the Daily Wire an entire room full of Latin scholars because I write my opening uh, monologues in Latin and then they translate them into English. Uh, you know, of course. And so, you know, many of you might keep hearing this word and think, what is quid pro quo? I have to be honest. I always thought quid pro quo meant this for that. And if you look in Wikipedia, that is one of the definitions they give. But consulting our room full of Latin scholars, I'm told that it means something for something. Okay. And so the Clinton people keep screaming, this is not quid pro quo because they didn't get anything except access, except you try getting access with the State Department, you try getting invited to dinner without handing over. Of course it was a quid pro quo. I mean, it's just that we have this standard that it's somehow okay to pay for access. It's okay to pay to play. And it's not. This is, this is corruption. So Donald Trump, of course, is asking for a special prosecutor. That's never going to happen. That's just something he has to do. Here is uh, Brian Fallon, uh, Clinton's uh, press secretary, basically, who uh, is striking back against, he's trying to turn this back on Trump. Uh, this is an absurd 
uh, call by Donald <coughs> Trump. Uh, it is an act of desperation on his campaign, given the uh, turmoil that we've seen from his campaign in recent weeks. And if you believe media reports, the Justice Department already declined to look into any of these allegations related to the Clinton Foundation. And there's two important things to bear in mind here, Kristen. Number one, the Clinton Foundation is a charity. It is a world-class philanthropy. Uh, based on its work, you have a Half a million people in the developing world that have gained access to HIV/AIDS drugs. The cost of malaria drugs has gone down 80 to 90 percent, and the Clintons do not personally draw a salary or profit from the work of the foundation. By contrast, Donald Trump—you have a web of business connections that were exposed in the New York Times this weekend. He owes debt to countries like China uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. He has said as president he's going to stand up to China. How can he do that when his own personal businesses owe money to them? Donald Trump has to come clean about. About his own business dealings, explain Brian, whether he me... will divest his holdings. These are far more serious questions than exist with a charity that pays the Clintons no money. Okay, that, that a lot of that is nonsense. But but just giving him a chance to say what he says. Yesterday we had Trump calling for the special prosecutor. That's this is this is so far no problem. No problem having their spokesman come out and defend her. I have no problem with that. This is the way it works. We hear him. We listen to that. We hear Trump. We listen to that. Okay. And, he, and let's, let's just look at James Carville, though. Why James Carville is invited anywhere? I mean, why this guy is invited anywhere? I mean, he is just, he, he should be in disgrace for just the way he treated the women that Bill Clinton abused. But let's just listen to his, his hilarious defense that this is a charitable foundation. What the Clinton Foundation does, it takes money from rich people and gives it to poor people. But should they have, most people think that's a pretty good should idea. Should they have done that from the beginning, though? I, We're not going to take foreign if money. If you ask me, as, as, a, as a political advisor, of course. If you ask me as a human being, nah, I'm not too sure. Joe, you're as a human being, I think I think Joe, everybody I want to go does an enormous point. amount of good. Not From a strictly political standpoint, yeah, if, if my sixth grade teacher, Mother Robert, who was sister to St. Joe's of Wright, somebody's going to hell over this. Because somebody, and I'm saying here, or somewhere, is, 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 this is saving people's lives. And there's nothing... You know, I think, I, I, again, well, very I, 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 I wish I could say what the word I want to say. I'll just say that's BS. <laughs> well, now, here's my question. James Carville says that as a, as a political person, yes, they, you know, they probably, this was not a good idea. But as a human being, he thinks it was great. Where does James Carville get off commenting as a human being? That's like that's like me saying, you know, as a woman, I'd like to express my opinion. You know, I mean, what the what the hell? When did he become a human being? And then somebody's going to help. Let me let me read you this from uh, National Review Online. <clears throat> it's important to keep in mind that the Clinton found what the Clinton Foundation mainly does. It does precious little in the way of actual philanthropy. Nine million dollars worth out of a hundred and forty million dollars in revenue in 2013 went to charities. So all this stuff about HIV, AIDS, when you listen carefully to what they're saying, they're saying they negotiated a good deal <coughs> to get AIDS. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm starting to sound like uh, Hillary Clinton myself. I'm just going to keel over at some point. And, and, and I want everybody here to keep saying, what do you mean you're questioning his health? That's, that's yeah. disgusting to question something. They'll just carry my body out and it'll be fine. All right. <coughs> um, so they're spending $9 million out of $140 million, uh, in revenue for 2013. 
And they keep saying, oh, you know, we got these deals for HIV AIDS. So they negotiated a deal for HIV AIDS and people got it a little cheaper. But that's not money coming out of this uh, this stash. Instead, it spends almost all of its money on salaries and travel expenses for various Clintons, including Chelsea Clinton, now its vice chairman. But remember, she's off limits because we don't attack children. Democratic allies, toadies, flunkies, hangers-on, and assorted minions all get money. It is a full employment sinecure program for friends and family of the Clinton political operation and very little more. So this is corruption. I mean, this is insane level of corruption. Now I want you to listen to how Andrea Mitchell on NBC reported this. Just see if you can tell, see if you can tell why I'm playing this, all right? Tonight, the Clinton campaign responding, saying the story relies on utterly flawed data. It cherry-picked a limited subset of Secretary Clinton's schedule. It comes after questions over whether donors got special access. In one email, Foundation official Douglas Bann writes Clinton aide Huma Abedin for a meeting with the Crown Prince of Bahrain, also a big donor, noting good friend of ours. A few days later, Abedin arranges the meeting after he goes through diplomatic channels. This would not necessarily violate laws or ethics agreements the Clinton signed. Okay. <laughs> you know, did, you hear, did you hear anything about that this might be corruption? No. I mean, she's co- she's doing a cover-up on the news. She's covering up for her on the news. And if you think it's just the news, see, this, if it were, even if it were just the news, even if it were just these Democrat hacks who are the ABC, CBS, and NBC reporters, uh, the people who run their news departments, even if it were just those Democrat supporters covering up for her, it's also the entertainment industry. So Colbert is on, and he does a routine where he has the the thingometer, the thingometer. Is it a thing or is it not a thing? And he looks into, you know, is it a thing that anything she was doing? Take a look at this. Here's what came out in some of the emails. First, they show ties to a charismatic, power-hungry international leader, Bono, okay? <laughs> He's a Clinton Foundation donor, and he got them to send an email to Secretary Clinton's top aide, Huma Abedin, requesting a, quote, link up with the International Space Station on every show during the tour this year. Any ideas? <laughs> Clinton staff wrote back, no clue. <clears throat> in other words, in other words, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Instead, instead, okay, so I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say not a thing, okay? Okay, now let's reset again, let's reset again. So what else is in the emails? A request came from the, to the foundation for Secretary Clinton to meet with another major donor, the Crown Prince of Bahrain, and this time he got a meeting, and anyone can see that looks bad, does not take a Bahrain surgeon. <laughs> or, or for that matter, a rocket scientist, Though, if you are a rocket scientist, could you please get in touch with Bono? So, first of all, it's, it's barely even humor. I mean, it's amusing. It's not, it's not really funny. It's barely even humor. It's just free ad space. And it's more than that because, you know, everybody talks about how Trump gets all this free media, but it's all the media is Clinton media. All the media is Clinton media. So anything he gets, he can only get by standing on his head and whistling Dixie, you know, the stuff, the crazy stuff that he does. So he's only going to get it by being controversial. She is getting media all 
the time. And the thing about it is, is this guy, I mean, Colbert is, is flopping terribly. And all of Hollywood, on the Hollywood Reporter, he has the cover. It's all about how he's finding his way. He's, fi- you know, it's now he's coming. And, he, and his interview is like, oh, I care. I, maybe I care too much. You know, maybe I'm, yeah. You know, it's like, because you can see him. He, you can see how desperate he looks. He's not, it's not funny. It's just selling a point of view. Plus, it makes you feel that if you want to be part of the Hollywood inset, you know, you have to take this point of view. I mean, this is the kind of thing that um, Trump's Trump's uh, new spokesman, what's her name, Kellyanne um, Conway, yeah, that she's selling. She's saying that that this is all, you know, people don't want to come out <clears throat> and say they're for Trump, especially if they're educated, because it looks bad. It's a social thing. And she believes that there's this undercover ground support. She's taking polls offline. Listen to this. this is, she says she's taking, when you stop taking polls on the phone, people admit they're really for Trump. Donald Trump performs consistently better in online polling where a human being is not talking to another human being about what he or she may do in the election. Why is that, do you think? It's because it's become socially desirable, especially if you're a college-educated person in the United States of America, to say that you're against Donald Trump. The hidden Trump vote in this country is, is a very significant proposition. Have you been able to put a number on that? Yes. Group? What do you think that is? I can't discuss oh, it. Oh, come on. No, it's a project we're doing internally. I call uh-huh. it the undercover Trump voter, but it's real. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not buying it. But, but it is true that they create this atmosphere in which if you want to be part of the fun set, the people who laugh, the people who are intellectual, the people who sneer at the, you know, their, their inferiors, you are not going to vote for Donald Trump. It's a, it's a you know, a fog of lies, this empire of lies that she rules, uh, Clinton rules. Oh, I got to say goodbye to the Facebook people. Stick with us for the mailbag. We'll be coming up. It'll be coming up. And this has been, you know, and, and you know, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter. I'm not telling you what a great guy he is. You know, I, I have he's he's been he's been doing all this corrupt stuff where he's been double charging for office space now that he's getting money from the RNC. And, you know, I'm not uh, it has nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with this empire of lies that Clinton and that the Clintons and the Democrat Party really rule over. I mean, listen to this. Here's Charles Blow, who I read in The New York Times, and I just think his columns are the most intellectually dishonest columns, except for all the other columns in the New York Times. But it's right in there. I mean, he just will say anything to push his point. And this uh, African-American Trump supporter says to him, you know, give me one example, one example of Trump being racist. Listen to this. Since we're on the topic of African-American subject, that's what we're on. Name one statement that you've heard Donald Trump say about African Americans. Yeah, I've got Name a short one. amount of time. Go ahead. No, do, do, uh, first ahead. of all, I don't know to listen to no, this. No, 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 sir. No, 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 exactly. No, no. First of all, be quiet. The way I was being quiet when you were talking. Right? That's okay. how this works. Go ahead, Charles. We're, about to, dialogue, time, right? we're about to run out of time. Right. So here's Name the deal. One. Here's the deal. No, no, so, name one. Bruce, let me see. Bruce, you talk to him. You want to talk about race? You talk to him. Bruce, let him. Let him. Because I won't do that. Okay. If he doesn't want to answer your question, he doesn't want to do that. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Because he can't. That's why. Thank you. Charles. Charles. Who is this person? Yeah. And why is he on TV? Okay. Uh, Where are you? Who, who is this person and why is he on TV when he disagrees with me? I don't have to stoop to giving examples. I just declare you race. In fact, that's what he can play the rest of it. That's what he goes on to say. Listen, here's the deal, right? So Donald Trump is a bigot. There's no other way to get around it. Wow. Anybody who supports, accepts that, supports it. 
Anybody who supports it is promoting it. And that makes you a part of the bigotry itself. It's like this is just, it's like the corruption just leaks down. It's, you know, I don't have to give any examples. He's a bigot. You're a bigot. He's a bigot. You support him. You're a bigot. And this is the message that's coming out everywhere. I mean, Charles Blow, you expect it from a guy like him, but it's coming out everywhere. However, while, before we stop talking about uh, corruption and get to the mailbag, we do have to add that Andrea Tantaros has now sued um, Fox News saying that she was also sexually harassed. And she says... Um, what what is this? I have to have this quote. Oh yeah, Fox News masquerades as a defender of traditional family values, but behind the scenes it operates like a sex fueled playboy playboy mansion like cult steeped in intimidation, indecency, and misogyny. So that turns out to be a bad thing. We you know we didn't know. I mean, that's that's what we thought we were doing here. All right, let's get to the mailbag. This is terrible. I'm ashamed to be on this show. Oh well, it is my show. So I, I all right. I I have a little hard time pronouncing this name, Jeroen. J-E-R-O-E-N. And he has asked me a question that I get asked every single week, so I thought I would finally answer it. I've considered trying to write a novel. What things should I consider? And are there certain things you do when you're preparing and writing a novel that I could use to help myself in this process? Uh, you know, I used to have a, a, a rote answer to this, an answer to that I would give to everybody, and it was this. It was read, read everything. Read great books. Don't read just the current fashionable books, uh, read all the classics, make sure you really know your art form before you try it, and make sure you really, really know grammar, because you can't build a house without knowing how to use a hammer. You know, I mean, I get, people send me stuff, and I can't read people's stuff, I just don't have time to read all the people who uh, want me to read their stuff, but sometimes I'll glance at it, and they don't know how to write an English sentence. They do not know how to write an English sentence. Now, the reason I've stopped so, so learn your grammar first. Get your basics down first. Make sure you know what you're doing if you're going to write a novel that you expect people to read. Then I, st I stopped giving this advice because I realized that that's advice if you want to write a good novel. And not everybody wants to do that. You know, I mean, that some people just want to write something that people are going to buy. And so what I would say to you is this. First of all, you do have to read. You do have to read how it's done. And you do have to study the people who do the things that you want to do. So if you just want to write uh, mysteries and you don't want to learn how to write novels in general to, to uh, apply that to the mysteries you want to write, re at least read mysteries and definitely learn grammar because the, the minute you make a mistake, you will come across as an idiot. Uh, professional publishers will see it right away and will... Uh, and will stop you in your tracks right there. As for myself, I am a huge uh, outliner. I write outlines forever. I mean, forever. I, I write weeks. I spend weeks and weeks writing outlines. It is the only part of my job that I actually dislike. It's the only part of my job that ever bores me. But, but it is incredibly important. The reason it's important to me is when I'm writing, when I'm actually feeling it, when I'm in there and I'm, you know, on a roll, I don't want to worry about the fact that the gun that was supposed to be in the kitchen is in the living room and I don't know how to get it into the kitchen. You know, I don't want to worry about the fact that things don't make sense. So when I reach a part in an outline and I say to myself, well, I'll make that make sense when I get to it, I stop, I go back, I go back, do the outline again until it all makes sense. Then I'm free to do the important stuff, which is to create characters and create emotions, to create the scene and all that stuff. So I do a lot of pre-prep work. I'd like to do all my research before I get into it. I don't like to be stopped by research. So those are the things that, that I would recommend. I mean, know what you're doing. And the, the one thing that I, I will emphasize again is make sure, I mean, grammar books are easy to, to buy and they have exercises in them. You can learn grammar. It's not that hard to do. And if your uh, manuscript is full of dangling participles and stuff like that, 
uh, you know, people will, will get it right away and they, they'll turn, turn you off on the first sentence. Okay, another name I can't pronounce, Shaul, S-H-A-U-L. This, uh, this fellow is from Israel. And he writes rather comically. Now, you have to hear this with a sense of humor because he's, he's teasing me. He says, I've been listening to you over the past few months, and you keep mentioning that you're now a Christian, and yet you keep using that famous Jewish humor all the time. <laughs> I wish you'd stop doing that and keep to what you Christians know to do best, the types of things that we Jews say, nah, that's not for us, but you Christians find hilarious, like the Inquisition. <laughs> In other words, you can't leave the golf club but still drive the golf cart whenever you feel like it. More important, according to Jewish laws, and I get this on Twitter, by the way, a lot, more important, according to Jewish laws, you can't really convert to another religion. So guess what? When you finally go to that long, clavenless weekend in the sky, there's going to be a rabbi standing at the gate waiting for you. We'll let you in at the end, but you're going to have to beg for it. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the question was there, but I did want to respond. First of all, I love this circular logic where you can't, you can't convert from Judaism. But since I've converted from Judaism, I no longer have to follow the rules of Judaism, so I can convert, but I can't convert because I was a Jew, so I can't, you know, it's like, where, where, does, where do these rules apply? So I'm not sure what, where, what that means. But one of the many, many things that really, really delayed my conversion, and this is serious, I really did it when I realized that in all truth that I had come to Christ and that I thought I should be baptized and I was feeling very powerfully this call to be baptized, one of the things that delayed me was I did not want anyone ever to think. I mean, you know, I'm a public person. Even before I did this, I was a writer. I'd do interviews. I'd write articles. I did not want anyone ever to think that I had turned my back on my people, the Jewish people. Uh, you know, they are the most beleaguered, attacked, assaulted, uh, offended, killed people on the face of the earth. All these people who want to pretend they're victims, including like some transgender kid in Omaha, like everybody who wants to, the blacks, everybody, they all come in second to the Jews. Forget it. You want it, you think there's some strength in being victims, you lose. The Jews got it all. Believe me, believe me, they are way, way ahead of you in their suffering and in their uh, uh, exclusion and in the bigotry against them. And I didn't want anyone to think, you know, what, what Jews think when a Jew converts is they think he's trying to pass. They think he's trying to fit in with the in crowd. He's trying to become part of the majority. Anyone who knows me would know that, which, that it's to laugh because I'm the outsider virtually everywhere I go. I'm, I'm the outlier. I mean, I'm a conservative in Hollywood, so the idea that I'm trying to fit in is kind of ridiculous. But, but I did not want anyone to think that I was betraying uh, the Jews. And I agree that there is a long, long history of Christian anti-Semitism. And I, there's a long chapter in the book uh, called This Thing of Darkness dealing with this. When I call it Christian anti-Semitism, it's obviously not Christian, but it did emanate from certain philosophies of the church, especially the Catholic Church, that they had now replaced the Jews. And when you read the history of the Middle Ages, the offenses and assaults on the Jews are almost incomprehensible. They were chased out of every country. They were killed. They were blamed for the plague. You know, the plague, oh, it must have been the Jews poisoning the wells. Uh, you know, when people talk about the Crusades and how awful it was for Muslims, it's absurd. The Muslims were trying to extinguish Europe, and the Crusaders went off to fight the Muslims, which they were well within their rights to do, but on the way, they'd stop off and kill the Jews, because they'd say, well, we can't go overseas to Outremer and fight the infidel if we don't kill the infidel in our own midst, and so they'd just stop off these innocent villages and have a pogrom, you know? So, I mean, this has been a constant thing, and I deal with it in the great good thing. There is, I think, one of the best, personally, one of the best chapters uh, in the book is called This Thing of Darkness. So, I, I am 
aware of this uh, attitude, and I, I appreciate. I, and by the way, I really appreciate your writing to me with a sense of humor and not uh, assaulting me because I get that too. So it's, I, I always appreciate uh, civil discourse. Uh, one last question from Dane. If you were, at least I can pronounce Dane, you know, that's a come on. If you were elected president, what would be your first act as president? What would be your first priority? I would dismantle the regulatory state. You know how they're always saying on the first day? On the first day, the thing that I would do is dismantle the regulatory state. I know that's not the most interesting thing. I know it's not doesn't involve Muslims. It doesn't involve Mexicans. I don't care. I would take down the EPA. I would leave two guys with test tubes who could so they could test the state of water, make sure the water in every state was clean, make sure the air in every state was clean. Takes, what, I don't know, 50, 50 guys. We'll give one to each state. That would be the EPA. That would be it. The Department of Education, gone. No reason for the Department of Education. However, it, whatever it took... Uh, to reform the IRS. Obviously, oh, I'd bring in experts to figure out how to reform the IRS, the, the tax code, so that you could do the tax code easily. IRS, out the door. Same 50 guys could drop over from the EPA after they test the water in the air and break in the money from the IRS. That's what I would do. I would do, uh, um, get rid of the regulatory state. And one of the things that breaks my heart about this election is that's what Ted Cruz was saying. He knew he was one of the o he was the only person, I think, who understood that this is where a lot of our freedoms are going. They're being destroyed with red tape. And the fact that a guy, a true conservative like Ted Cruz, was pushed aside for a fake conservative like Donald Trump uh, is just heartbreaking. I think uh, that, you know, that's just really sad. I would have I would have rather lost an election with Cruz out there fighting for what I believe in than win an election for a guy like Trump who's essentially just um, Hillary Clinton in a wig. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> basically the same, the same policies. All right. And I know all the policies about the Supreme, all the stuff about the Supreme Court. I get it. I get it. But still, still, I really uh, wish Cruz had gotten that nomination. All right. Stuff I like. I've been following a train of thought this week. I started out with Hell or High Water, this wonderful uh, little crime drama, and it had Ben Foster in it. And then I was thinking, gee, Ben Foster was in another small crime drama called Alpha Dog that I liked. And it was filled with all these actors who went on to become fairly famous. And that made me think back to another. And, and it was based on a true life story. That made me think of another small crime film that was based on a true life crime and that featured a number of actors who went on to become more famous. Uh, a 1986 picture called River's Edge. Has anybody seen River's Edge? No, no. This is a, it's a really good movie. I mean, it, and it holds up pretty well. And it's based on a, a murder in 1981 of a woman named Marcy Renee Conrad who was strangled by Anthony Jacques Broussard, and Broussard bragged about the crime and showed the body to at least 13 different people, and nobody told anybody. And so that's the story of River's Edge, is there's a body of a woman who's been violated and killed down by the River's Edge, and all these kids are so disaffected from the adults, all these teenagers are so disaffected from the adults that nobody thinks to, to call anybody, to tell anybody. And it's really just about these kids and their empty lives and their drug-hounded you know, drug lives. It has Keanu Reeves in it. Uh, and Crispin Glover, who went on to play the dad in Back to the Future. Uh, and it has Dennis Hopper playing this drug dealer that they all hang out with. Here's a scene. His name is Feck, I think. And he, he lives alone in absolute paranoia with a sex doll. I, her name is Nikki or Christy or something. And Crispin Glover is going to him and has to convince him to give them some dope. And this is this uh, clearly ad-libbed scene between Crispin, Crispin Glover, this teenager who knows about this body, and Dennis Hopper, the drug dealer who's their best, who's the only adult in their life. It's me, Feck Lane. Don't shoot, okay? I could blow your brains out. 
I, I know, Fag. I shot a girl once. I know. <laughs> you keep telling me that, Fag. You want to lower that barrel some? <laughs> I am your friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, you say so, huh? You're my friend? Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Don't you try anything. <laughs> Won't you and Matt come in and uh, see Ellie? Oh, I'd love to, Feck, you know, but we're kind of, we're late for school. And... Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, how much you want, then? <laughs> Oh, come on. No, dude, I came by to see how you're doing. Good yeah, old yeah, fag, yeah, good you know? Old <laughs> yeah. How much you want? Uh, just a couple of joints. Take <laughs> me. So that's that's the only adult relationship in their life. The only guy they can relate to. He's in there with Ellie, who's the like I said, an inflatable sex doll, and that and that's it. And otherwise, they're completely disconnected. It really is a powerful picture about uh, at least the state of youth. Then youth. Then I don't suspect it's any better now. All right, we have one more day of the Clavin Week. Let's savor it. We have to savor it, you know. We have to live for the moment before the, we plunge into the darkness of the Clavinless weekend. We'll be back tomorrow to discuss every possible event that has taken place between now and then. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you then. <laughs>